Welcome to the Supplement Engineer Podcast. My name is Robert Chesky. Joining us, industry veteran, expert in supplement science, sports nutrition, and a bunch of ingredients that I'm excited to talk about, Dr. Hector Lopez. Long time coming, Doc. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's, we've been colleagues, I don't even say colleagues, associates. We've talked for a couple of years now, and I'm, I'm so excited that we finally get to do this, uh, this yeah. interview. So thank you for joining us, first and foremost. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure finally being on. You're right. It's been a long time coming. And um, yeah, no, I, I think it's safe to say we're colleagues and and uh, and friends, industry friends. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I'm always cautious because like I, I'm on the podcast with an MD guy that's like on the cutting edge of supplement science and research. And so I'm the little geek that's at home, you know, looking at all this from the, from the bystander thing. So it's like I'm very cautious with using those kind of terms, but uh, you know, it's it's a genuine pleasure and honor to be able to speak. So thank you. Oh, thank you, man. That's very kind. Thanks for thanks for the kind words. Um, just as a brief recap for the audience that may not be as familiar with your stuff or may not be as nerdy with the ingredients as I am, just as a as a highlight, we're gonna say 3D pump, vaso drive AP, Alluvia Purple Force T, um Tea Smart cream. Smart Prime Ohm, which is new Omega 3 that you just got released. Uh, I don't know which other ones you can divulge at this time. T-Cream, Dynamine. Cream Dynamine, uh, yeah. Anything else you want to leave? Yeah, there's a, a longevity one, NAD3, that's been kind of in, I guess, semi-stealth mode, kind of like Smart Smart Prime has been over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's probably about ready to see the light. Um, and, uh, yeah, a, a, a few more, um, you know, old school going way back. Obviously, Hydromax was probably the first one that really made its way into the industry as a branded ingredient for us. Um, yeah, it was called something else before Hydromax when we were just, you know, basically stabilizing glycerol and felt like, you know, that was, uh, what, like 12, 13 years ago. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Back to the old glycerol monosteri days where you get those giant tubs of clumped up powder that just ruined your entire tub of pre-workout. Yeah, the wax, right? And then even once you got it into your shaker, it would just like sit on the surface. It's a nice waxy coat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you started off in sports medicine. You pivoted into supplement science. Have you gone back to, you know, when you were a kid and a teenager, did you, were you always active in athletics? Did you have a passion for science? So how did we get from, you know, the young Dr. Lopez to the grizzled veteran that you are today? <laughs> yeah. Um, I've definitely always had um, a passion for both um, nutrition or anything that I could read on a label, which sounds kind of weird for a kid. But I, I think, to be honest, it all started because I was uh, I was allergic to egg, ovalbumin, basically. So egg yolk, egg white. Weird. From the time I was one. So the first time they introduced it, um, you know, parents probably should have introduced it like they do now much earlier. So I would have been desensitized yeah. uh, and tolerated it. Uh, but yeah, so I was one and I was hospitalized. Um, and, you know, from that point forward, I had a a pretty substantial egg allergy. Mm -hmm. And in the seventies and eighties, I mean, you know, there were, there was a lot that uh, egg was used for as an emulsifier. It still is obviously. Um, so, but from the time I could start reading, I would just pick up anything I was consuming or in the grocery aisles and just read the ingredients mm -hmm. because my parents kind of taught me from an early age, look, this is what you look for. If you're going to eat something at school or someone's going to give you something, if you're away at a friend's house, Mm -hmm. is what you look for. So um, I guess that was probably the, it's kind of, you know, probably a little weird, you know, but it's probably the genesis of, if I think like what has made, 
had me come full circle. That's probably the genesis of what had got me interested in ingredients, bioactives, functional ingredients, formulations, if you will, because yeah. I was reading whole ingredient labels, you know, from the time mm -hmm. I was probably six or seven or eight, you know. So, um, so that's that started me on, along the path of just awareness of mm -hmm. oh, what are these ingredients? Even some ingredients you couldn't pronounce that. Uh, most people, you know, would say, well, those are additives or excipients or whatever. I was already kind of reading them and at least aware about them. Yeah. And then, it, and then what happened is then there was an intersection of that with the fact that my dad had, he was an avid collector of all the old, you know, uh, fitness and bodybuilding magazines and, you know, the, the old, old school muscle and fitness, old school flex. Um, he was a commercial storyboard illustrator and one of the, so what he would do is they would hire him to write out storyboard frames for like a, um, a commercial that would air on TV for a big, you know, big brand or something. Yeah. Um, and so the art director would hire him. He'd illustrate out the, the, the frame by frame. Um, and so I remember Arnold and Sly Stallone and uh, you know, Carl Weathers, the old Rocky, and, you know, uh, obviously um, uh, that whole sort of team, Dolph Lundgren eventually. So he was, doing storyboard frames with a lot of these characters. And then, uh, and then it just, you know, honestly, I would read some of the muscle and fitness, like cover to cover, eventually like flex and then muscular development. And then, you know, it got all the way into the nineties when I was in grammar school and then high school. Yeah. Um, and then growing up, I, I love playing baseball. Baseball is I'm Cuban. I'm first generation Cuban American. My parents are both Cuban. So baseball is my, my diehard passion. I wanted, first I wanted to be a pro baseball player. Uh, <laughs> you know, who, who doesn't, who didn't, right? Right. Uh, and then I, I was, uh, I guess, aware enough to realize I probably didn't have the attributes and the, and the talent. Um, and, uh, and I could work my ass off, but, you know, the, uh, uh, the, sti the, the chips were going to be stacked against me. So, um, so then I quickly transitioned into maybe wanting to explore how else I could get involved in pro sports or pro baseball. Then mm -hmm. I remember my dad mentioned to me, he's like, you know, if you did like something like communications and maybe a sportscaster, you know, yeah, uh, in, in journalism. And then I, I kind of explored that a little bit, but then I always mm -hmm. kept coming back to the like human performance of athletic feats always fascinated me. But I always wanted to know why and how. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, bio and, and uh, chemistry and eventually as I got older, biochemistry and really digging deep into mechanisms. That's ultimately what really just, um, you know, it's the kind of thing, you know, sometimes they ask, like, if you really want to know, like, the three things to look for when you're looking for a career. Mm -hmm. And I, I credit my dad with really, you know, giving me these, this, this sort of wisdom. Um, he passed away last year or so, but he's, uh, he always told me, he said, one is, you know, what, what do you love to do? Two is, um, you know, what, what uh, sort of comes naturally to you? What, what sort of pro, you know, proclivity do you feel like you have? Mm -hmm. And then three, what do you feel like the world needs from you or what you can contribute to the world? Mm -hmm. And if you can find the intersection of those three things, and there are many ways you've seen this, like Ikigai, right? The Japanese sort of philosophy. Right. If you can find the intersection of all these things and you're probably going to be living a fulfilled life. And um, that was really all like my parents did. Like there was never the pressure of like, you know, in some cultures it's, you know, it should be a professional, either an engineer, a lawyer, a physician, right? That right. was really the case. It was always do what you love, 
do what you wouldn't mind doing on a Saturday night when your friends are asking you to go out and you're like, ah, you know what, I could do this instead and you wouldn't mind doing it. You don't feel like you're missing out. Right. Um, if you find something that, you know, kind of fans your flames that way and fuels your fire, then go after that. And that's ultimately how I found my way into the end of high school, going into undergrad. I ended up um, wanting to get uh, really, really fascinated by molecular biology and uh, recombinant DNA technology and molecular genetics. So I ended up, um, I went to Rutgers and I, I double majored in um, uh, biotech, molecular bio, biochem, and then also nutritional sciences. So that was the, the combo that started it all, I think, you know, early on. And then I minored in exercise physiology. So that was, <laughs> that was dream, like uh, as an undergraduate, granted, right? Yeah. Uh, but as an undergraduate, I felt like I got a chance to put together like everything I loved in the sciences and in a vocation. So that's how it started. Uh, and then I went through undergrad, continued to find out how I could get involved. Like I started sort of uh, going to the local ACSM chapter meetings. I started meeting people there, NSCA. I started meeting people there at the state level. Uh, then I was asked to present uh, when I was, I, I was like, I was still an undergrad. So I still didn't have my CSCS because you need a bachelor's right before you can mm -hmm. uh, qualify. Right. I still didn't even have my CS and I remember presenting for one of the state, you know, meetings in New Jersey. Um, and then I, I, I uh, at that point, late in my undergraduate years, mm -hmm. my dad ended up having some health challenges that kind of he, he got a, a, a small a trochlear nerve palsy in the eye. So he developed double vision from a stroke, a small stroke. And as an artist, like that's that's your livelihood. Right. So. Right. Um, so that brought me really closer to medicine for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the first time I ever considered, I said, you know, I think there's a potential here for me to bridge the gap because I felt like there was so much that medicine was missing. This was in the 90s. Uh, yeah. even, even though you could consider a lot of nutrition science still in its infancy back then, mm -hmm. um, there was still a lot that was happening, advances in nutrition and nat natural bioactives and uh, and even just exercise science uh, um, principles that were not being applied in, in the clinical realm in conventional medicine. And I thought there was a huge yeah. divide there, these two things uh, on separate islands. Mm -hmm. So that's when I decided, I said, you know what, Dad, I think I'm actually going to pursue medicine. And so I, I approached my counselor and said, well, you know, there's, you know, MCATs, you could take the MCATs, you're already, you know, a senior, you could take the MCATs in like a month. Mm -hmm. you, know, you probably want to prepare more than just a <laughs> I, I took a, a practice and I did pretty well. So um, and then uh, I ended up, you know, pursuing medicine at that point. Fascinating. There's there's a lot of different uh, avenues we could take. Mm -hmm. um, we could start with you with the ingredient stuff. Uh, but I almost kind of want to start with just, I guess, high level, you know, just research questions, because this is the opportunity to be able to. Uh, pick the brain of people that are actually designing the studies for the ingredients that we we've come to know and love in the sports nutrition space. Um, Cause we see a new trademarked ingredient or a new branded ingredient at least once a month, if not more frequently than that. And quite often it's backed by one study that may be good, maybe not be good. And so for somebody that's actually kind of in the weeds, that's either, either exploring these ingredients and bringing them to market or, has been contracted as part of the research firm to design these studies. 
Mm -hmm. uh, let's start there with how does that first start happen? I guess we can limit it to, to your case because you probably had it both ways where you stumbled upon the ingredient and then you want to you know, start working on bringing it to market or you've had a company say, hey, you know, we know you're respected in this space. You know how to design a study and carry it out. Uh, which, how do we do this in an ethical way to where it comes across to the consumers as this brand, this individual, this research study, it's on the up and up because we've seen ingredients come to market in the past and that the research is behind it have juke the stats and we, we don't need to get into specifics mm -hmm. yeah. or anything like you, you, you understand what I'm or sure. the, the sure. case that I'm speaking of more or less. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's start there. How does that first start? Um, does somebody like compound solution, nutrition, 21 creative compounds, any of these brands, do they pitch you or do they bring you in on that initial stage when they're first vetting an ingredient? Uh, it, yeah, so so we could start there before um, segueing into because uh, uh, we we sort of like to keep a, a a pretty strong Chinese wall, if you will, a firewall between ingredients that we have an IP interest in. Right? Mm -hmm. Clearly, we would have a conflict of interest if all of the data uh, on that particular ingredient was only coming out of our CRO, or our lab, Correct. and we recognize that obviously, but. It, it's we do have an advantage in that we can use our own CRO as an incubator for mm -hmm. ingredients or compounds that um, we've screened or we've managed to find via in silico methods or machine learning or AI. And we want to explore deeper. And um, yeah, so it, it allows us to do that. But that we operate that as a, a completely separate business from our CRO. And the way we started running the CRO, Tim and I partnered up um, almost uh 12 years ago now, I'd say 12, 13 years ago. Okay. So um, I think it, it, it for some people, you know, we continue to stay oftentimes in the background. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do any outbound marketing. There are, you know, the majority of CROs do have like a marketing department. They've got a sales team, right? They're actively uh, uh, promoting their services and they're actively trying to secure um, uh, leads for clinical studies from a lot yeah. of branded ingredient houses. Right. Um, we, we did things a little differently. We just felt like we, we could start uh, growing things more organically and just word of mouth because then mm -hmm. we can also control the growth as well, as opposed mm -hmm. to like putting huge dollars in marketing and then being inundated with uh, all these requests for proposals and then, um, and then maybe having the, the quality of what we wanted to put out there um, as far as evidence-based um, supplement science is concerned. So we'll start with like the, what got the CRO started, which was just, yeah, providing a good solid service as a full service CRO, right? So there's some CROs that what they do is they, they sort of, um, they'll take your concept or your design and they'll try to sort of uh, place your study at various sites within the US or Canada, mm -hmm. um, mostly within the US. Uh, sometimes they'll try to place your study in India or in other countries as well. Um, and then, is there a reason for that? Is it just cheaper to, to outsource it to other, or is it more friendly research teams kind of thing? Or you know? a little bit of both, but I, I think it's um, it's often comes down to the economics of it. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, um, so there there's a couple of different tiers when it comes to the economics of running studies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would say. A CRO uh, like ours um, is probably middle tier as far as the cost of running studies within the CRO business. Okay. 
Um, because we don't, we're, we're a very lean team because we don't have mark, we don't do outbound marketing, right? So we don't have the overhead that some other uh, CROs might have, right? Uh, because all we do is word of mouth. And we work long term with a lot of our partners. So once we do a study with a sponsor, we usually end up doing multiple studies. We develop a strategic partnership or relationship with that, mm-hmm. uh, that research sponsor. Um, but uh, I would say, uh, so you could place studies at, at various sites. Um, and yes, the economics of being able to run studies overseas uh, oftentimes outweighs the potential um, upside of being able to say you ran the study in the U.S. Um, um, Now, what's nice about running studies is uh, whether you do it overseas or you do it in the U.S., like the key is really you can find a lot of what you need to find by going first and foremost to the method section. And that's oftentimes the last section or even a section that most people don't ever read, right? Right. Uh, You know, they're seeing headlines and abstracts usually, right? Correct, yeah. Um, and, and so you can learn a lot by just going straight to method section on every study. And that's often what you'll see a lot of the nuances popping out like, huh, okay, so this study was done overseas in a certain country where, well, why was this in the study with 34 men, their average BMI was 22. They, they weighed about 72 kilos or 65 kilos. And, and, you know, they're pretty, they're novice as far as strength training mm-hmm. uh, background is concerned or, or training experience, right? They're untrained effectively. And we're wondering why we're seeing these, you know, and then percentile versus absolute changes. And yeah. we're wondering why we're seeing these changes, a 45% increase in one rep <laughs> over an eight to 12 week period. Yeah. And again, the devil's in the detail. So if you look at the method section and you start scrutinizing it a little bit, you can start figuring out, okay, I see what happened here, right? It almost right. be like if we were here at our CRO and Tim and I would say, hey, let's go to the local grammar school or eighth grade high school or even freshman high school class. We recruit all our subjects from there because, yeah. you know, that, I mean, they would make great subjects for a study, right? If we're looking for performance improvements, they're nowhere near their asymptote, right? right. In terms of their, uh, their, their genetic limits or their training uh, background. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's critical to your point. I know you, you're obviously much more attuned to being able to uh, critique studies and, and pick them apart a little more than, than most, right? In the end. Yeah. So, um, but w- with us, yeah, w- the way it starts with us is usually an initial relationship with a, a, a sponsor, like you mentioned, like a Nutrition 21 or a Compound Solutions, and uh, they've got an ingredient. They bring us the ingredient. We usually already know the ingredient. We usually already pre-firm on the science, like the mm-hmm. mechanisms of the ingredient, but yeah. we'll do a deeper dive. Um, and then we'll often work backwards. We'll ask them, in a perfect world, if the study, if you could have any endpoint and uh, what claims do you ultimately want to make uh, in your marketing, on your label, your messaging? Uh, then we talk about what um, what your consumer, you know, target consumer avatar looks like or who mm-hmm. you want to go after. Um, and those are usually the things that allow us to now start working backwards in designing a study um, that would ultimately help them substantiate those claims, the mm-hmm. claims that in a perfect world they'd like to be able to make. Again, whether they're exercise performance claims, body comp claims, or uh, some other health category, you know, claims, whether it's immune, longevity, joint health, um, cardiovascular, endothelial health, uh, mm-hmm. name it, et cetera. 
Uh, so we usually work backwards. Um, and then of course, the major parameters that I think often don't get enough um, credit is just like, you know, like when you're formulating, you've got huge constraints on cost of goods. Yep. Think about it from our standpoint as researchers, we also have cost constraints as well with every study we run. Right. And I think that that oftentimes, you know, kind of either goes by the wayside or there are many armchair researchers who've never been in the trenches, never actually run a an ICH, GCP guidelines-based study. And for mm -hmm. those who may not know, those are, you know, these are global standards that are recognized, like International Conference of Harmonization, good mm -hmm. clinical practices, just like there's GMPs for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. There's GCPs for running clinical trials. And there's things, something called consort guidelines. So we run most supplement studies effectively the way you'd run a pharma trial Mm -hmm. um, within reason, of course, there's still some things that we couldn't do that we would be doing in a pharma study. Uh, and we do run occasional pharma studies as well, where we're more on the, we're just a site for those studies. Those okay. studies already come with a protocol, like a full, you know, 65, 70 page protocol intact, mm -hmm. uh, everything you need from an inclusion exclusion criteria, the design, the primary, secondary, tertiary endpoints. How are you going to manage and track adverse events, um, safety, um, and then that you know all the PI packet already? It all comes ready for you to just take it on as a site if you feel like you've got the patient population to be able to take those on. Uh, but we run all our supplement studies the way you do. You'd run a pharma study within reason, and usually it's the scale, right? It's the mm -hmm. sample size number um, that ends up limiting you, um, and the number of total visits to the lab, right? Because those are things that will often drive cost. Okay. Um, when so, uh, one of the ingredient has this come in, they have the design protocol. Do mm -hmm. y'all get any input on to say, hey, maybe these metrics that you're telling us to run or assess aren't the most valid? Now, obviously, it's in the ingredient house's interest because they're going to set it up a certain way to where hopefully it, it works out because they don't want to pay, you know, $50,000, $200,000 for the study and mm -hmm. it come up you know, blank or shows that the ingredient's not as effective as placebo or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, do y'all have any input in that instance to where you can kind of push back or just construct, give constructive criticism and say, hey, this is a more accurate or a more genuine way to assess whether this ingredient is doing X, Y, and Z or not? And then are they receptive to that? Or are they kind of say, hey, just here, here's our money. Run it like we tell you to. If not, we're just going to go somewhere else. Yeah, no, no, no. Actually, we, we would probably... Um, and that's one of the, I think one of the benefits of running a tight ship, the way that we've been able to run it, um, mm -hmm. is, uh, we would probably end up, you know, how like sometimes a, a, a physician has to fire, quote unquote, fire a patient. Um, right. at that point we would probably say, look, we're, we're probably not the CRO for you to work with. Okay. Um, it's oftentimes that when it comes to research design, mm -hmm. we're the ones having the primary input, um, okay given, you know, their budgetary constraints and given, you know, what they, what they ultimately want to say about their product, because that's their product, it's their IP. We, we have to respect that. And, mm -hmm. um, and then we can have discussions about um, pros and cons and trade-offs of using uh, a particular instrument or an outcome measure. And, um, and sometimes it does come down to cost. You know, there, there are, many limitations with every study. No one study is ever going to cover every potential limitation, obviously. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the important things that we usually um, 
that, that we try to impart on our research partners and our, our sponsors is that, look, what you really want to do is build a solid body of evidence, the, the totality of the evidence. Um, you know, like if you ask me, would you rather have four small, well-conducted studies that all have small sample sizes and maybe you're underpowered in a few for a few of the ACA measures versus one mammoth, gigantic study where, you know, you go all out and it's a $700,000 study. And I tell you, no, I, I'd rather have that reliability and reproducibility of being able to redo the study, at, at, um, even in multiple sites and centers as well, if possible. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so no, the, we, we do get a lot of um, opportunity to provide guidance and, and feedback on how many of these studies are run, at least in our CROs. That may not always be the case in others, but yeah. Okay. All right. What um, we hear a lot of the time about the cost of these studies kind of being a hindrance or a limiting factor in the, mm -hmm. the scope or the duration or the population size. Is there one or two things that you can point to as like, this is the main cost driver of a study, or is it more dependent on, I guess, the, the type of ingredients y'all may be doing, is it the testing, or is it just, or without fail, every time you're running a study, this ends up being kind of like the most uh, expensive facet of it? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, it, it, it can vary dramatically, but most of the cost drivers, most of the time are sample size, you know, with all, all other things being equal, it's sample size, and then it's the number of actual direct contacts with the subjects, okay. and, and the number of controls, and that usually means the number of visits to the lab. There's only so much you can do. We've done it all ways, you can imagine, as, as you can uh, I mean, we've been involved, Tim and I individually and together have been involved in over 150 to 200 clinical trials. There are a lot of them that don't get published. A lot of them get, get kept uh, under file for sponsors. Mm -hmm. um, we've even independently sponsored studies for ourselves that we just keep in-house as our own data. And that actually gives us a, a really big, I think, advantage. Uh, we have our own data set of many pilot studies um, mm -hmm. We're actually up to over about 200 pilot studies that we've never shared that data with. And that's just in-house data that we keep. So anytime yeah. there's a new ingredient on the market, we secure sample, we get product in, we test, we run a small pilot battery, and then um, we end up keeping that data in-house. Um, that gives us enormous insight that, to be honest, I don't think anyone else in the world really has access to, even combinations like, oh, have you ever wondered what you know, a certain ashwagandha extract with a certain ginseng extract, standardized for ginsenicides and metabolites, what that does. We have access to data like that that nobody else in the world does. And um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's something that it gives us a unique perch and an opportunity mm -hmm. to really provide insight. But getting back to your original question, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really driven mostly by sample size and number of contacts, uh, specifically even visits to the lab. Okay. And then that's that's something that contributes to cost with every study, regardless. Uh, and then you have other nuances like this, the actual study design. So is it an acute single administration where most, quote unquote, nootropic energy products, for example, are that can be a one single dose visit to the lab. And then you you either cross them over, or you do parallel design. Right. Yeah. Um, that that's usually three or four visits to the lab. Or are you talking about? a longer duration chronic training study, um, which really, really can be a bear, uh, much more of a bear to run than people can appreciate unless you, you run routinely run studies like that. Right. Um, you know, these eight to 12, 16 week studies uh, where you're doing 
training, you're trying to control for training diet, and then you've got the intervention. Um, your, your dependent variable, um, uh, is what you're looking for. And then, uh, you've got your intervention. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's driven by a variety of things, but in our CRO, just to give you a range, uh, I'm not, I don't mind sharing a range, you know, we've done studies and continue to do studies. We run about 25 to 30 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do, uh, you know, our studies can run anywhere between say 85,000 on the low end. Usually we don't do anything under that for, unless it's a pilot. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we, we do some work for some, uh, large CPG players that, are in the seven figure range as well. So that's a big range, right? So yeah. it's basically, you know, 85 to 1.4 million. So uh, it's a big range. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But the majority of them do fall. If you run like a mean and a median, mm-hmm. the majority of them probably fall in the 150 to 250 range for a high quality, higher quality study. Um, it, you know, you, you could you could run a study like that probably a little lower cost at, at some universities, not all mm-hmm. universities, right? Because <laughs> yeah. some universities are very strict about indirect costs. Mm-hmm. And that, that can add an overhead of like 53 to 60% on top of the cost of the study because of indirect costs to the university, right? So the more prestigious the university usually, as you can imagine, the more costly the indirects. Um, then there's some uh, university uh, that we also work with university partners as well, right? We collaborate mm-hmm. there all the time. Uh, some universities that have like an endowment or a foundation uh, that allows you to run studies, maybe a little lower cost. Um, you know, sometimes they have undergraduates in the lab collecting data, for example. We don't have undergraduates collecting data at our lab, right? They're all professional uh, PhD, master's level, and MD or DO level um, uh, staff at, at our CRO. So, uh, there's that. And then there's also lead time. That's big too. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, there's a little bit of a running joke in, in that sometimes, um, if in the time we've actually collect, we've gotten IRB approval, uh, enrollment, uh, so screened, recruited, enrolled and collected data for a full study. Um, there've been some university partners that, um, uh, that uh, that the, the sponsor has decided to also run a study with the same study with, and uh, they just barely got across getting IRB approval. Sometimes it's multi months, yeah, multiple months of IRB approval. So lead time is important, right? And that's a business mm-hmm. decision as well for um, some of these sponsors. I mean, do you want to wait a year and a half to two years for data, or do you want to have access to your data to be able to start substantiating your claims within six months? Yeah. Um, three to six months. So we're very fast. We're very efficient in that regard. That's why we're able to run 25 to 30 in a year. Yeah, that's what it was going to be. I'm glad you brought up the, the university labs because that was going to be kind of the, the next point that I was going to segue to is that you, you're a private research organization. There's a couple of, you know, better known or more well-known uh, human performance labs like the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill's got a good mm-hmm. one. Texas A&M's got a great one. University great of Arkansas. Yeah, Abby Smith is great. Rick you know, Ryder out there. They're fantastic. Sean Arndt now, you know, used to be at Rutgers. He's down at uh, South Carolina, U, U of SC. Right. Um, a, a few good ones in Florida as well. Uh, yeah. 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 There is there, uh, I guess, aside from the, the possibility of undergrads or less trained individuals having a hand in the, the runnings of the study, are there any other major differences between using a CRO and a, a human performance lab at a university? Yeah, I would say a couple of other things I would add to that. One is um, IP ownership can be pretty interesting. 
that can be a little difficult to navigate at the university setting. Because as you probably know, most universities have a tech transfer office. Right. And so whenever you're running studies, it, it can be challenging to make sure like, um, so for, if I'm putting like my IP holder cap on for mm -hmm. any of my ingredients, like Smart Prime, for example, or NAD3 or T-Crane and Dynamy, mm -hmm. if I'm running a study at university, I do run the risk that if there's some new IP discovered, we may have to share ownership of that IP oh, and sure. licensing of that IP. Okay. Um, it, it can be a little wonky the way the wording works in those research mm -hmm. agreements. For us, though, we make it very black and white, very crisp and clear. We're here more as a business friendly CRO. We understand the mm -hmm. importance and the benefit of, an, of uh, IP as an asset. Mm -hmm. And so we are um, unabashedly hand over any IP to the, uh, to the research sponsors that we work with. So any new IP that's discovered, any IP that um, may have been, may previously have been unknown to the, mm -hmm. to the sponsor, even if we uncovered it, um, it is, it all belongs to the sponsor. So that's one big thing that I think it's academia. Yeah. From, from a privately held CROs. The, uh, the other, we mentioned lead times, huge. Um, the, I would say another, probably not so much uh, with the principal investigators and um, uh, the, the PhDs that run those labs you mentioned, because they're a little more attuned with um, how industry works. Right. Um, you know, they're colleagues of ours as well. And we're very friendly and, uh, you know, we attend meetings together often and, and we're, we're often collegial and sharing new data as well um, behind the scenes. But with, with um, many other academics that I've seen, um, they don't necessarily have the understanding of, Deshea or um, 21 CFR 111, mm -hmm. and they don't. They also don't understand FTC, and they don't understand FDA structure function claim. So mm -hmm. you can you can have a great study. Let's say a, a joint health ingredient, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you enroll patients, quote unquote patients who have a ICD-10 diagnosis of osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, and those are your subjects. Um, it doesn't matter how you couch the language on the mm -hmm. results of that data. You, you, if you reference that study and you end up publishing that study, then the FDA interprets that as a misbranded, uh, unapproved drug claim. Whoa. Yeah. That, so there are nuances. Even on the, it's not just the patient population or the subjects, but even on the endpoints. So I, well, I've done mm -hmm. some things where, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, there's a, a big study we published on a, an ingredient called IUFLEX. It's from mm -hmm. Natrion, Terminalia, uh, our, um, uh, it's, a, it's a Terminalia extract. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, that was a huge study. Uh, we ended up doing some really cool things there that were first in the industry. Uh, we looked at, like, spine wellness or spine health and comfort scores. Mm -hmm. But what I did there is we modified the WOMAC scale. So instead of using the Western Ontario McMaster osteoarthritis scale score, mm -hmm. Womax, we did a modified. So it's literally called in the methods, you'll see it. And in the section, it's called an M Womax. It's a modified Womax, modified for the natural products industry, essentially, because we removed, I scrubbed out all the drug disease language from there. 
I guess what's the way you go about phrasing that? Because that's I mean, you you brought on. We're like we're just you're, you're naturally segueing to kind of everything that I've been wanting to hit so far. Uh, so this is this is a good uh, yeah. little role we've been on. Yeah. So this is something that I'm curious to because if you're sports nutrition is one thing, but when you start getting into the general health stuff, so cardiovascular support, joint health support, liver support, yeah. all that that fun stuff, yeah. not as sexy as increasing your bench or your lean mass gains, yeah. but equally it's not more important for but you know what life. it's I've, I've convinced him over the years and has as he and i have gotten older we now have also transitioned our cro and our ingredient yeah. interest also <laughs> into more general health crossover right longevity as well so yeah right so when you're designing these things so say you want to uh, investigate a, a blend of like green tea and some other botanicals and see its beneficial impacts on cardiovascular function or reducing inflammation around the joints how do you phrase that in the actual research? And then what claims do you, how do you pass that on to the ingredient houses to say, hey, these are the claims you can make for the ingredient without getting in trouble with the FDA and they're not getting in trouble, but you know, getting a slap on the wrist or something. Yeah, no, and that's, that's exactly where you have to have one foot in the, you have to have one foot and we've worked with all the major legal firms in the industry as well. And I think that's a major benefit, right? I mean, one of my companies just does regulatory compliance separate from the CRO, right? Supplement safety solutions, where we right. do adverse event reporting. So we've been doing that for almost 10 years as well. And we've got such a good relationship as subject matter experts. Sometimes we're expert, we provide expert witness testimony or we're um, sort of a scientific opinion um, mm -hmm. on behalf of many of the best legal firms in the industry that yeah. does this kind of claim language massaging. So we've become pretty good naturally by, you know, with our work in the legal world as scientists, as, sci as scientific experts mm -hmm. in the legal world, you have to sort of continue to wear a legal cap in terms of understanding where the, the risk is always exists along a spectrum right. um, and understanding where there's a very bold line um, mm -hmm. or there's the speeding limit. And then there's, you know, how, how, close to the speeding limit do you want to approach or do you want to barely come over the speeding limit knowing that if you do get pulled over you're probably getting a ticket um so so there's there's always an element of weighing and considering that aspect along with what does the data tell us what does the science say um uh and and what do the results indicate and how do we interpret that so the results in, a, in the example you mentioned in like a green tea extract for cardiovascular health markers or endothelial health, um, the results may actually say, let's just say it, you hit a couple of lipid markers that decrease, uh, like total cholesterol, triglycerides. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's say you were able to also improve uh, blood pressure, right? Systolic, mm -hmm. diastolic blood pressure improved. Um, and then you're able to look at measures of endothelial function like FMD, like flow mediated dilatation on brachial artery or ankle brachial index or something like that. Mm -hmm. it basically shows you you've got improved, quote unquote, blood flow. Um, if you look at measures of like blood rheology, which basically measures a little more of like platelet activity and how um, uh, red blood cells are moving through capillary beds. Okay. Um, if you look at like oxygen extraction capability, things like we did with purple force or, you know, the, the purple tea extract. Um, so what happens there is the, you may be completely correct scientifically and have all the evidence you need to state in your manuscript 
things that would easily be drug disease language that you're talking about cardiovascular risk factors, right? You're talking about uh, cardiometabolic disease. You're talking about type two diabetes. You're talking about uh, atherosclerotic risk factors, right? Or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk factors. Uh, you're talking about hypercholesterolemia and hypolipidemic benefits. All those things, if you were, you might be, you might be supported with the data you have in your research. Mm -hmm. And that saves you from being in trouble with the Federal Trade Commission, with the FTC, okay. because you might be truthful and not misleading. Right. But then you're in trouble potentially on the, in the Office of Criminal Investigation with the FDA, because if you just take that language, that plain, you know, clinical medical language, mm -hmm. and you bring it into your marketing of that ingredient or that product, that green tea extract. Now you have crossed the line according to the FDA. So you haven't violated anything FTC wise. Right. Now you've violated FDA for sure. You know, FDA structure function, the Shea language. Um, you would be in violation of uh, essentially making, introducing a misbranded, unapproved drug into interstate commerce. Just by making those claims that are truthful and not misleading, but you can't actually say the truth in your marketing, even if your science supports it, simply because the FDA has clearly delineated your lane, right? This is your drug lane, and this is your uh, dietary supplement lane. And uh, there are some clear demarcations between mm -hmm. those lanes, but like when you're swimming in your lane, if you're doing laps sometimes, there are going to be some ripples and maybe some strokes that head over into the other lane a little bit. Like inflammation might be a great example, right? Right. Um, you can mention inflammation only in the context of um, a non-diseased state or a physical condition, like related to exercise, related yeah. to day-to-day -day, uh, physical overexertion or something of that nature. Yeah. So in those instances, you could say it supports cardio. Like, so you could say supports cardiovascular health. Could you say? reduces triglycerides or is that is that stepping on toes no you could you would have to qualify that so you could say maintains uh either you could say maintains triglyceride levels already within normal range already in the healthy range or you can say maintains already healthy triglyceride levels that's a uh by most standards that would be a an allowable structure function claim if you did if you did a study that shows that you got statistical significance, strong, strong, well-powered study that shows that your product did in fact decrease plasma, you know, triglyceride levels. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, I'm trying to think, I mean, it seems like but when you can get creative in other ways. So we've done something where we've, we've taken, um, I, have you ever heard of something called like, um, like the predix uh, metabolic one, uh, metabolic health marker, type two diabetes prediction marker, there's something else. Um, there's a couple of these markers like metabolon releases and these clinical, mm -hmm. uh, they're used by physicians to basically try to predict risk. There's one uh, that's run by uh, LabCorp. When you run LabCorp and you do an NMR, like a more detailed for people I may not know, that's more than just a lipid panel or lipid profile. Mm -hmm. You can run an NMR analysis on your fractions, on your lipoproteins, okay. and really take a deep dive on like the particle size particle number, um, LP little a, and then they actually have something that has five year 
uh, risk data associated with your risk of your risk of developing type two diabetes based on your on this very deep dive lipid panel, mm -hmm. uh, which is called LPIR. It's a, a lipoprotein insulin resistance score. Um, so you could you could take that data, and unfortunately, if you take that data because it's linked directly to a type two diabetes risk. You would be making a drug disease claim if all you did was just say reduces your insulin resistance risk score, even though your data supports it in your study. But what we've done is we've called it metabolic wellness, for example, improves your metabolic wellness index or uh, we've done things like that. You can get creative. And that's where sometimes you do need to sort of wear, you know, your creative hat, legal hat and, you know, scientist hat as well, because. You still need to interpret. Ultimately, that's the first step. And that's usually, I think, the biggest difference between someone who spends all their life in academia as a professor versus mm -hmm. someone like what we do, which is we've been in academia, we've been in industry, we're, we're running our own CRO, and we understand the needs, and we have our own IP and ingredients. So we sort of understand, and regulatory, right, with me. Right. So we understand all those different perches, I guess, that you, you might need to stand on. Um, and those vantage points. Yeah, I think that's that's a big advantage. Yeah, yeah I, and on one hand, I understand why those regulations or those boundaries, the lane markers exist from just to protect consumers and, you know, from the, the nefarious players out there because there, there's whatever industry you're in, you're going to have, you know, disingenuous people. Yeah. At the same time, I also wonder, is that is that hamstringing uh, ingenuity, innovation in the industry or just the average individual being more willing to try some of these natural ingredients versus always going jumping into the pharmaceutical route. And I don't want the listeners to mistake this. Like I'm not against pharma or anything mm -hmm. like that. I mean, it's like they, they certainly have their place, but at the same time, you know, berberine for a perfect example, like berberine versus metformin could, if we could say berberine, instead of just saying supports cardiometabolic health or supports already stable blood sugar, if we could say, combats the risk of type two diabetes when we're marketing this one, it's got a considerable body of evidence behind it. You know why? So that's, I kind of wish you're right in, in that yeah. instance right there. No. And you're, you're a hundred percent, right. It does have that effect on, on, on the, the dynamics of how the consumer is going to perceive that product. Right. You know, it's going to almost like add fodder to the, Oh, well, the supplements aren't regulated, right? Who knows what's in that stuff. Right. And, yeah. and, it does because you're hamstrung in what you can say. And if, and the other thing is when everyone starts saying the same thing, despite the fact that you've got maybe three or four or five different mechanisms of mm -hmm. how they're doing it. Right. I mean, look at the, the blood flow, you know, we do a lot of crossing over between the pump and non-stim pump and pre-workout space. Yeah. And obviously the, um, maintaining, uh, uh already healthy blood pressure <laughs> in the healthy range. Right. Yeah. Uh, hence, like basal drive being one of them. Uh, so we, you know, you can play on both sides of that fence, but that's one mechanism. Then nitrates are obviously another mechanism and precursors to the nitric oxide pathway, like the good arginines and the bioavailable arginines and uh, citrulline, right, obviously plays another role, yeah. uh, another pathway. Uh, and then you have the actual ENOS activators themselves, right, mm -hmm. the polyphenols that actually um, allow you to prime the pump, if you will. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's hard to then be able to differentiate your ingredients sometimes when you're effectively hamstrung to only being able to say 
two or three claims despite your mechanism and your data being really strong and impressive. Right. Yeah. And so that's where, well, I mean, you, you get some of these questions every now and then uh, just on the, the different podcasts or in my inbox, you'll get something. Like, hey, what should I use? Vaso drive or citrulline? I'm thinking, yeah. we're, we're talking about two different things. So like, I don't they know have a, yeah, they have a similar end result, but putting them together is kind of where the secret sauce is right. there. And so, um, so yes, uh, unless, unless the consumer puts in on, on themselves, which is a, it's a tall order. It's a tall ask, right? I yeah. mean, I don't know. this is what we do on a daily basis. So we love geeking out about mechanisms, but right. uh, it's hard for me to have a conversation with, you know, my, you know, my cousin, you know, corporate attorney cousin, or, you know, someone who just like, yeah. just tell me what to take. Tell me if it works. Is it safe? And I'll take it from there, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, they don't necessarily worry about uh, synergistic mechanisms and additive, you know, mechanisms. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. We let's pivot now to, mm -hmm. uh, some of the actual ingredients. Uh, do you have any specific one you'd want to jump into first? I mean, so smart prime is the, probably the newest one that has kind of hit the market. Mm -hmm. Do you want to start there? Or do you want to start on one of the, the ones we've kind of maybe touched on a little bit already or yeah, we could start there. Yeah. Let's okay. start with smart prime. That's fine. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's start with kind of a high level overview. So, Omega-3 fatty acids, they're found in fatty fish, they're good for cardiovascular support, maintaining an already healthy inflammation response right. in the body, whatever we want to say about that. That's we're not going to get in trouble. Right. Um, most people don't get enough omega-3s in their diet. There's a great imbalance between omega-3s and omega-6s. So, you know, people know that they need fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids. Where does Smart Prime Ohm come in in the greater cosmos of fish oils, omega-3 fatty acid supplements, and how is this, I guess, different or uh, a better option versus what's currently available on the marketplace? Yeah, so it's interesting. So the genesis of Smart Prime was actually uh, a combination of, um, so one of my IP partners um, uh, who kind of uh, spearheaded the initial ideation on, on Smart Prime, Ryan Yates, he's actually a PharmD PhD. So he's a pharmacologist and a PhD in uh in pharmacology so mm -hmm. um a really brilliant guy um uh, really gets into the weeds on mechanisms on uh pharmacognosy and and pharmacotherapies uh and uh pharmacokinetics etc and pharmacodynamics so uh where this comes in is is we were looking at um targeting metabolic disease or metabolic health so both fatty liver uh, for those who may not, you know, may know it as different names. So NASH or NAFLD, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, mm -hmm. uh, metabolic associated fatty liver disease, which to be honest, I think is probably a, a more appropriate term because it's a little broader, um, uh, more associated with metabolic dysfunction or dysregulation, insulin resistance, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. um, combined with maybe some lipid issues, right. Which somebody might already have, uh, yeah. genetically. So, um, so yeah, it's it it's interesting because if you look at um, a lot of the the science uh, behind omega three on especially on like primary prevention, it's it was actually pretty disappointing when you look at some of the meta analyses that have been conducted over the last ten to fifteen years. And I was a big big omega three fan from a just consuming more omega threes, whatever it takes to get your omega three index up. Right. Because of my a lot of my early work with Nordic Naturals, right? Nordic Naturals is one of the 
largest um, omega-3 right manufacturers in the world. And yeah, it's the bottle of omega-3s I got in the pantry behind me. There you go. There you go. So, yeah, and for many years, it was one that, that I also had and used with my daughters even, you know, as they were growing up and my wife when she was pregnant mm -hmm. uh, and myself. So, um, so yeah, so, so um, you know, they, they, there was on paper, when you look at all the mechanisms and all the pathways that omega-3s touch, it should almost, quote unquote, cure everything. But when you were looking at some of the data, it really wasn't quite, you know, backing up what we would expect on paper. And there were a lot of disappointing headlines as a result. Now, granted, there were many limitations with some of these meta-analyses, even the studies that were included in those, in those larger meta-analyses. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as they often say, garbage in, garbage out, right? You have to be very careful about what studies you select to come into your meta-analysis. Correct. So, um, so often what was happening is, you know, they weren't necessarily measuring omega-3 index effectively. Sometimes they were only measuring plasma omega-3, which is like a short-term snapshot of your omega-3 status, but right. doesn't really take a look at your red blood cell omega-3 uh, or um, uh, white blood cell plasma membrane, you know, omega-3 index, uh, yeah. which are important as long-term markers of your status. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they weren't using a high enough dose, you know, sometimes it was 500 milligrams. It was inconsistent, 1.5 grams, two grams, et cetera. Um, but really the main limitation was that the genotype uh, wasn't used as a way to randomize patients. And, mm -hmm. and genotype has a lot to do with how you end up metabolizing, especially polyunsaturated fatty acids. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of those like major areas where you're, you might have a SNP, and especially in the in in the global population, there's really almost two alleles within the pathway of how you convert like the short chain omega three and omega six fatty acids to the end product long chain ones, right? Um, and so so what we ended up doing was trying to figure out a way to um, sort of uh, nutrigenetically modify that so mm -hmm. that we would make all hypo responders make them responders and then make those who are already normal responders make them even better responders, right? So going from uh, poor to good and then going from good to great is what we were looking for with this IP. Okay. Um, and so we screened multiple compounds. We looked at multiple bioactives. We kept coming back to the various um, sesame uh, isomers uh, within sesame seed extracts. We mm -hmm. uh, screened uh, multiple species of both white and black sesame seeds to look for the various compositions of the different lignans in there. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately we standardized the sesame, but there's the, the, the secret sauce includes a complex of other lignans like epicesimolin, epicesimin, et cetera, in addition to sesame. Um, and then, so there was one is, if you have the genotype that's consistent with someone from sub-Saharan Africa, right? It makes sense that if you didn't have access to the coast, you needed to be a very efficient metabolizer of those precursors in order to make that end product, right? Correct, yeah. Because you weren't going to get preformed EPA or DHA, right, from fish any anytime. Right. Uh, so you needed to be able to convert flax, perilla, ahi flour, all those precursors, like that are high in ALA, for example, mm -hmm. linolenic acid, to be able to convert that with those with the enzymatic machinery all the way to EPA and DHA. Yeah. And now oftentimes you hear a very you know, blanket statement like, oh, we're very bad at converting, you know, those precursors to EPA, DHA. Right. And I was often, I was mistaken 
it previously in that I, I also kind of just took the data for granted. Um, and then as I dug in a little deeper, I realized, well, there's more nuance here. It really depends on your genotype. If you have a certain allele that makes you a, a hypermetabolizer uh, based on how active your D5D and D6D enzymes are, mm -hmm. you're going to be very efficient, even with a small amount of um, precursor. But if you're of Nordic descent, for example, you had access, you evolved having access to the coast, you had mm -hmm. access to EPA, DHA, um, you didn't have to be a very good metabolizer once you got, because you were getting the end product already, right? Right. So you didn't have to take ALA or LA and make a lot of the end product, right? Because right. your body uses the same enzyme to work on both the omega-3 and the omega-6 pathway. And that's what many people, I think, don't realize. So if you're using the same enzyme to work on both omega-3 and omega-6 pathway, the end product, mm -hmm. then it's going to be very dependent on what you're feeding it right, right early on and what your enzymes are choosing to um, allow into the, into the driver's seat to then turn into the, the end product, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things that Smart Prime does is it allows you to basically, the enzyme has two seats, one for omega-3 ALA, mm -hmm. one for LA, omega-6. And it basically allows the seat to be much more amenable and comfortable to docking ALA, the omega-3. Mm -hmm. And it kind of crunches the, the other seat for omega-6 so that the LA does not easily come into the enzyme and allow you to flux through that pathway. Interesting. And that's one of the things sesame and all of those related lignans do mm -hmm. uh, at, a, at a high enough dose. Um, and, you know, this can happen within liver adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, uh, but mostly in liver a lot uh, in mm -hmm. high activity and adipose tissue. Um, and then the other thing we were finding is that there's a phospholipid issue as well, which is if you throw a bunch of omega-3 at someone and just increase their omega-3 index, you don't know whether that omega-3 index, you don't know in what type of phospholipid that EPA or DHA is, is packaged in. Mm -hmm. So you don't know if that's packaged in a phosphatidylcholine form, like PC, right. or is it in phosphatidylethanolamine form, PE, mm -hmm. or is it PS or PI, et cetera, or the others. And right. really for, for just you know, making the conversation more simple, um, you really want to have more in, in someone who's obese, overweight, has metabolic health issues, insulin resistance, cardiometabolic mm -hmm. health issues. Usually the problem is they're packaged mostly stuck and sequestered in the PE form and not enough of it is going over into the PC form. Okay. Choline package. Right. So the first problem you have is in most people, you want to get the pool up of omega-3. So you want more of that EPA, DHA, DPA, the omega-3s up there. Correct. And then now you've got the pool. Now you have to package it correctly. That's the second issue. And that packaging does not happen in the gut. It actually happens mostly in the end cell because everything gets disassembled during digestion. Right. So even if you consume like salmon roe, for example, mm -hmm. which a lot of it is already in the, in the phosphatocholine form, you're not just going to take that DHA molecule and the phosphatocholine form or that LPC DHA molecule and transfer it exactly intact across the gut into the lymphatic, into your blood system, eventually making its way to the liver and all your other tissues. Mm -hmm. or across the blood-brain barrier. That's something that happens. So once you consume the uh, omega-3, it gets cleaved off, 
and then it gets reassembled and packaged in the in the small intestine in the enterocyte and then it ends up getting absorbed into the lymphatics and then eventually you know gets distributed to the body fascinating so is this something that would replace uh, an individual's omega-3 supplement is this used in tandem with it is this kind of you know is that where this is being more positioned on like hey this is a an add-on to make your body more efficiently more appropriately harvest and utilize the omega-3s that you're already consuming that's correct in theory you could take this and that's where some of the initial data was was performed uh, both in animal models and in in humans um and now we're going to be doing a much larger scale a couple of human studies at larger scale is that you can still take this in isolation and it will a increase your omega-3 index so increase the pool and B, it will convert or transfer more of your DHA and EPA into the phosphatidylcholine form from the phosphatidylcholine. That will it will do it in isolation. But um, this is being positioned and really should be as an amplifier, as an optimizer of whatever. It's agnostic to your choice mm-hmm. of omega three. So you can keep taking your favorite Nordic Naturals uh, product, and if you add the Smart Prime to it, you'll have a better outcome. If you end up doing algae, better outcome. If you do flax because you're strict vegan and don't even want algae and you only do flax and perilla or ahi flour, you'll again improve the and amplify the um, some of those uh, endpoints uh, regardless. Um, and some of the other cool things that's happening is it's also increasing the efficiency of um, generating those resolvins and protectants, those downstream metabolites, the prostaglandins, leukotrienes, um, uh, in the, in the more, uh, uh, healthy anti-inflammatory, anti-thrombotic inflammation resolving pathways or signaling agents. Um, yep. So delivery forms, is this in a powder? Is this going to be like in a gel cap or like a spray dried kind of thing? Almost how do how are people it's gonna a free flowing powder now, uh, mm-hmm. but it can be wet milled into soft gels and it already has actually, there are a few products already on the market that are u- utilizing it in soft gel form. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even one, uh, fairly substantial, uh, sports nutrition brand that's going to be making an announcement soon. So I can't really say who it is, but you'll definitely recognize them when they do. Um, uh, Leviathan already has it on the market in a soft gel mm-hmm. form as well. Uh, but then there are a couple of companies that have also done it as just the powder in a capsule. Mm-hmm. And there are even some EPA DHA products like Evonik has um, a Veil OM, uh, which is like a lysine salt of EPA DHA in powder. Mm-hmm. And it's actually pretty high payload because most of those powders are low payload. Right. It's actually like a 55 to 45 percent payload is okay. a powder of EPA DHA. So mm-hmm. you can do it in a capsule or a, a tablet with those as well. Interesting. Yeah. Um, with these, uh, the various ingredient IPs, like, and I guess we, we can start with, um, 3d pump. Cause that's kind of the, one of the newer ones on the block. Mm-hmm. Um, from your mindset as, as, you know, one of the, the arbiters of the ingredient, mm-hmm. do you like to approach it as, Hey, we're going to blast this and offer to as many companies as possible. Or do you want to be a little bit more selective? Cause I know when, like 3D Pump was first coming to the market. I remember uh, Bruce saying that, hey, we're going to offer it only to a few select companies. Mm-hmm. Is that more ingredient dependent or is like, are we, for, for something like Smart Prime where it's got to have a much wider range of appeal, do you want to go and blast it to as many people that are willing to try this new technology, this new ingredient out? Or do you want to be a little bit more specific? And then do you 
do you, or I guess your business partners restrict uh, to make sure people don't pixie dust in like 50 milligrams of the stuff or in the case of base or drive AP, they're not going to put in 27 and a half when you need at least like 254 or something along yep, those lines. Or above, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so the, the answer is it's it's ingredient specific. You're right. Um, you know, usually what we do there is you, you need to, you want to fit the ingredient to the, um, uh, first you, you want to find a partner, potentially a distribution partner uh that where the ingredient ends up being a good fit for them and then it's obviously a good relationship a good fit for you in terms of their philosophy yeah. um are they uh are they good stewards of qa qc gmp and uh, on the up and up in terms of supporting you know r d and the science yeah. um because that's that's at the very um you know that's foundational for us right if if you're not going to support continuous R&D, like not just resting on the laurels of doing one study, one and done, and then, you know, riding it all the way until, you know, the wheels come off. Yeah. Uh, that's not our style. We're not going to be, we're not going to end up being good long-term partners. Um, but it, it's definitely become more, I think, initially with T-Crean and Dynamine, I think that was, you know, a very global blanket strategy from Compound to just try mm -hmm. to, you know, saturate the industry uh, and get everyone to understand the merits and benefits of, you know, basically pairing your, your products with T-Green and Dynamine. And now we've gone beyond, to be honest, even beyond energy and beyond caffeine and beyond uh, neuroenergetics and beyond nootropics um, because we've discovered some other non-obvious uh, cool properties or features and benefits of T-Green Dynamine, including anti-inflammatory and uh, more general health, even longevity, like affecting the sirtuin pathway and NLRP3 pathway and some other cool things um, that you'll be hearing some more about in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's, it's ingredient specific. So with 3D Pump, absolutely, you know, um, my partners and I, Bruce and, and Tim, the three of us, we, we decided to be a little more judicious with it. And as a matter of fact, we're even able to pass along the savings of not having this go through a traditional ingredient house. You know, so right. it, it's, we're basically, it's much more work for the company internally for us, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, we feel it's worth it because we have a lot more control over the messaging, uh, yeah. to your point, the dosing, uh, and you know, the brands that, um, that we feel comfortable having, having the ingredient associated with as well. Yeah. Uh, going forward. And I mean, this, I guess this may be painting too broad of a stroke, but do you, do you like having the partnerships with the, the ingredient house or distributor, or do you kind of like now that you've got a taste of doing it with 3d pump, do you kind of like having being the, uh, you know, the master of your own destiny kind of thing. And you control, are you and your partners control where the ingredient, the supply and all of that stuff? Yeah, I don't think there's a um, preference right now, to be honest. It, it's, they, both avenues bring with them, you know, various trade-offs. Um, there's some pros and cons to both. You know, when you're doing it on your own, you obviously have potentially a little more risk, a little less support. Um, you also don't have as much of the outreach necessarily. Um, so that, that creates a little more burden on, um, on some of the infrastructure. Okay. Uh, when you partner with an ingredient house that already has that reach, um, it, that brings some other benefits as well, right? You're spreading out the operational risks. Mm -hmm. You're spreading out the logistics. You're also spreading out the financial risk. Um, and then the way we do our, our deals in that regard, it's much more of a JV, much more of a joint venture because 
we, we, even though we stay behind the scenes, we, we are pretty intimately involved in, in the direction, especially in, in certain things where like roles and responsibilities, like we definitely handle in terms of any R and D um, sort of responsibilities or roles. It mostly ends up, you know, ultimately coming through us, through the IP holders, whereas sales and marketing, you know, we leave that up to people that know much more about sales and marketing um, than we do, right? So, yeah. With the ingredients, we don't see a lot of head-to-head -head comparisons of um, yeah. this. And like, I guess in this avenue, since yeah. I got you here and you've kind of yeah. spearheaded a couple of things. So it's like, kind of confusion. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I, well, I with like, say you want to run a study and you want to say, hey, teacrine versus zynamite versus... Uh, an extra or something like that. And you want to see energy increase or you want to compare 3D pump versus just regular citrulline versus nitrosagene or, or self-low six or something like that. Do you stand at any kind of, um, or you are the company, I don't know how you want to phrase it, um, at any kind of legal risk by just comparing somebody else's ingredient to yours since you have a vested interest in it? Or say, say your ingredient comes out on top and you just say, hey, look, we were... If two times better than this. Yeah, than a specific branded. Uh, yeah, can you do that or can you not? Yeah, I'm curious why we you don't can. see some of these kind of studies more. Yeah, no, I think you can do that, uh, but you definitely increase your legal risk substantially by doing that. And I think yeah. that's probably the major reason why you don't see more of it, um, mm -hmm. to be honest. So we're we're more. I think. I I'd like to I I think um, a happy medium is looking at like, for example, we're doing with 3D pump currently. So we're already enrolling and collecting data on patients, right? So it's 3D pump at six grams versus just straight L-citrulline at eight grams. So you're really comparing three grams of citrulline inside 3D. Right. With eight full grams of pure citrulline. And it's, you know, it's a generic, it's a generic ingredient. That's a great ingredient in and of yeah. itself, right? And there's a reason why we use it in 3D pump, right? It's a, it carries many merits with it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think most of your listeners are very well aware of, you know, why citrulline is included in, and so pervasive in the sports nutrition world, right? And even beyond. Um, we just used it a little differently. And I think there's some of the nuances probably gets lost when you look at the panel uh, of 3D pump and you're like, oh, yeah, it's, a, well, it's like a mix, an admixture of three ingredients that we've already known for some time. Um, there's a little more nuance there, obviously, and that's part of the IP, right? Um, yeah. You know, we screened over, you know, uh, uh, 12 different botanical ingredients um, and um, until we came up with the, the one that ended up really showing us synergy. There were others, we, to be honest, it surprised us. We thought there'd be no difference, for example, between a... Um, you know, maritime French parm, you know, pine extract, uh, a pomegranate extract, um, uh, a grapeseed extract, uh, as yeah. long as it was rich in those paranthocyanidins and some of those polyphenols, we thought that they'd probably be very little difference. Uh, but that's what IP is about when you get a pleasant surprise and then you reproduce it. And sure enough, it's there and it's there again. And it allows you to make, you know, you, you've observed something that's non-obvious. Um, and it's more than just phenomenological and you have something that's novel, non-obvious and synergistic and you've got real IP. Yeah. Um, so that happened with us with 3D pump, but then we also don't use silica as a carrier as much anymore as we used to with the original OG glycerol hydromax yeah. that, uh, eventually paved the way for everyone else. Once 
the trade secret got out after we licensed it to Glambia, which I must credit, actually, a lot of that started with, uh, I believe you had, we, we texted briefly about this, I think you had Dan Pierce on, on your show, right? Mm -hmm. uh, on a podcast? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. About a month ago now. Yeah. So Dan Pierce introduced us. So I don't know if you mentioned it, but he, he introduced us to Glambia way back when, yeah, he knew about Hydromax or what we were doing. It was called something else at the time when he was with Gaspari mm -hmm. uh, in his first year. Or so he was there and uh, yeah, he made that introduction and we took it from there. We ran it up the ladder to the science folks at Glambia. They really liked it. And uh, so we ended up, you know, licensing it to them yeah, and selling them the, the IP. And then eventually it got out, you know, some of the, 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 everything we went through, we went through 15 different silica types before we found the one that worked, uh, the inlet temperatures, the slurry, the outlet temperatures of the nozzle of the atomizer. There, there are a lot of little details that go into the, why even Hydromax with its, all its problems, if you've ever seen Hydromax as a standalone, we have Hydromax samples from, I kid you not, in our um, offices, we have Hydromax samples from 2010, 2011, that's still free-flowing powder. Really? In isolation, yeah. The issue is, obviously, when you, when you have augers that introduce heat and friction, when right. you have other hydroscopic ingredients, the nitrate especially, uh, the, any free basis like L-arginine hydrochloride, any, anything that drastically changes the pH, mm -hmm. even you know, high acid loads of citric and malic acid, yeah. Um, uh, things like even betaine as innocuous as it might be in isolation. You oh, start yeah, that's super hygroscopic, yeah. Yeah, it, when you start mixing all these ingredients that each have their own hygroscopicity to them, it's only a matter of time before they cause a problem. No matter how, how much someone claims uh, that their glycerol product is stable, it's glycerol. It, unless you've changed it, you know, chemically, then it's no longer glycerol. Then yeah. it may not clump, right? It may no longer be hygroscopic, you know, but yeah. then it's probably not going to do what you want it to do intravascularly anyway, right? So. True. Um, going back to the polyphenol source, shall mm -hmm. identified as being the, the, the most optimal for inclusion of 3D pumps. So it's the, the Indian gooseberry, the amla fruit extract. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it, so we, we know that these polyphenols, they're all at, at the core they're stimulating endothelial nitric oxide synthase, which is the enzyme that's going to, you know, catalyze the conversion of arginine to nitric oxide for the listeners that may not be sure when we're throwing around these terms, what, what, what all's going on. So yeah. is it a matter of assessing the potency? Because like you mentioned, grapeseed's got some fun polyphenols in it, pomegranates got the punicalligans in it. And, you know, every, you could have even used maybe like a citrus sinensis peel or some kind of orange peel extract because we've seen ingredients come out that have those fun bioactives. And so mm -hmm. we've got all these different types of bioactives. Pine bark's another one. Mm -hmm. Is it a matter of just like which one is doing it the greatest amount for the least amount of bioactive compound that you need? Is that what you're kind of I, I trying to identify with this? Because they're all they all have the same result, but maybe you only need three milligrams of this where you might need 300 milligrams of this other polyphenol source. Is that kind of where like the secret sauce is in trying to yeah. identify which one? Yeah. So you have to almost like pick your, um, your limiting variables. You have to kind of do it systematically. So for us, we usually do it based on total milligram of an, of a product. So mm -hmm. for grapeseed extract, we used a 95% OPC, you know, standardized product, right? For some of these others, you're not going to get a 95% active. So you're not going to get as 
you know, so you're talking about maybe measuring some of these polyphenols that are much more uh, playing a single note, you know, they're only playing one instrument versus the orchestra of all the other family of flavonoids and polyphenols that might be included in a less isolated, less standardized mixture, mm -hmm. right? So one of the things we did is we looked at like a 20% uh, low molecular weight tannins, a 40%, a 65%, and an 80%. And for us, we actually found that a middle ground of 40% ended up bringing uh, many, many more results that we didn't see with the more concentrated version. And the reason we felt that happened is because low molecular weight tannins in this case are doing more than just working on ENOS. There's probably other compounds that are non-tannins, mm -hmm. like not the elagotannins, for example, and not the low molecular weight, you know, mon monotannins, but they're probably other uh, flavonoids um, that are maybe even there's some catechins in there, for example, that at a lower level um, are acting more directly on the ENOS enzyme, mm -hmm. on the endothelial nitric oxide synthase enzyme. But what's happening with the tannins is they're actually working more on the actual RBC on the red blood cell rheology. Oh, so they're cool. attaching to glycoproteins that's been found mechanistically in uh, uh, an animal and in vitro model, actually, mm -hmm. uh, with Indian gooseberry extracts and, and low molecular weight tannins and oligotannins. Yeah. They actually interact with the RBC, with the red blood cell itself, not with the enzyme lining your blood vessel. So it's a completely different mechanism. So in theory, you could combine a low molecular weight tannin, which we didn't really appreciate. You could combine low molecular weight tannin with, for example, like a pycnogenol or a pine bark extract. And you might, you might potentially see something more uh, additive. You know, it may not necessarily be synergistic, but it might add something. Uh, it might bring something to the table, to the party that you otherwise wouldn't have. But the, what makes the low molecular weight tannins unique is they do a few things acutely, and then they do some things long-term that gets better over time the more you take something like the, the 3D pump, which is why we're going to do a second study on a long-term adaptation study um, it's doing some things to recovery in advance, for example, of your next session. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's almost like if you take it intra workout or pre workout, it's almost already helping to amplify the recovery and adaptation process before your next training session. So almost something like a tart cherry extract or something like there might yeah. be some kind of polyphenols that are supporting the maybe some heavy modeling or doms or something yeah yeah something like that that allow you to recover faster and then you go and train you can train you more train frequently more intensely yep yeah so there's something else happening with the glycoprotein so the rheologies where we feel the magic is here is mm -hmm. the, the glycerol is adding plasma volume intravascular mm -hmm. then the citrulline is clearly providing substrate for ultimately allowing you to manufacture more and make more nitric oxide yeah um, for the enzyme, the nitric oxide synthase, more arginine, and then eventually more NO. So you got NO, you got plasma volume, and then the low molecular weight tannins of the AMLA, the Indian gooseberry extract, the phalanthus, is doing something to change the rheology of the red blood cell that allow it to flow through capillary beds more efficiently. Huh. And, and it also ends up doing something over time where those can convert in the microbiome you, they can be biotransformed into urolithins, urolithin A, B, C, and D, some of these urolithins, which we know there's actually some ingredients now showing potentially mitochondrial health improvements from the urolithins as right. well over time. 
Um, there's even something with the low molecular weight tannin that makes it act also as a mild ACE inhibitor as well, like vasodrive also, very mild. So it's really doing a lot of heavy lifting in many different areas. Mm -hmm. In any one of those areas, it may not be a, a heavyweight champ, but uh, it's probably more so, I think, what it's doing with the red blood rheology acutely that allowed us to see these acute benefits in terms of how much blood uh, and plasma was able to shift intramuscular from the intravascular to intramuscular compartment. Mm -hmm. We did these acute uh, DEXA uh, studies and when we did these um, BIA, multi-frequency segmental BIA to look for fluid shifting into muscle tissue from yeah. blood, yeah. Wow, cool. Yeah, I was uh, some like I've talked. We, yeah. we, we I've talked to Bruce before, and Aaron, and yeah. yeah, just that's that's one topic that like I've talked with Aaron over at Performax about this because he uses 3D pump, and just like he's he sent me some of the, the initial patent research on it and stuff mm -hmm. like that you, you guys had sent him, and that, this is the first I'm hearing about the red blood cell uh, rheumology. That's pretty cool. I'm gonna have to go yeah. and dig it. Like yeah. that's something I, I've not even heard before. As, so. as an engineer, I'm sure you'd appreciate fluid dynamics and rheology. So, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> Bring you oh, fluid dynamics. That's you're going to give me nightmares about college again. With that, with that class. Good Lord. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so I think there's more going on than meets the eye, but you know, look, I, you know, I think it's, it's hard to expect, every brand owner that brings the ingredient in to understand like all of those nuances, right? Yeah. It's probably going to get lost on the consumer, which means, you know, as a brand owner, it's probably not as important to them as well anyway. Right. So correct. Yeah. This is more for the people that just love diving and down, uh, you know, ingredient mechanism, wormholes yeah. and things like that. So. And, and honestly, Robert, I think part of what happens is again, it's like the, the, the nuances and the, and the context is important is, yeah we have access to being able to do these things in a controlled setting. It's not just like the bro, like, Hey, let me take it to the gym and give it to like five guys and see how they feel. You know, it's like, yeah. it's not a controlled setting. There's so many variables that can confound your results. Right. right. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes that's how brand owners make a decision. I'm not, I'm not faulting it because that's, that's great for us to be like, that's where we start like ourselves hypothesis yeah. generating. Right. You know, right. Uh, Anecdata, right? Anecdotal data. I mean, it's where you start generating hypothesis, but ultimately you still need to um, explore that and answer those questions in a more rigorous, ask those questions in a more rigorous fashion before you can really make a determination as to whether something's like complete, you know, it's like, oh, this is bullshit. Like there's nothing novel here. It's, um, yeah, um, I apologize for, uh, uh, for, <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about there. There's, anything goes on this. This is not a kid friendly uh, podcast good. in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> good, good. So, yeah, I mean, it's look, it, it, you know, you could see it and say, well, what's it going to do beyond citrulline at, at three grams? Well, we'll show you because clearly we wouldn't be running a full scale study that's going to cost even us six figures, over six figures ourselves out of pocket in order to be able to compare six grams of 3D to eight grams that only has three grams of citrulline compared to citrulline in and of itself. Um, and, you know, there's also just the, uh, the pragmatic aspect of it too, with supply chain being where it is. You know, we have all these ingredients locked up. We've had them locked up for a long time because of other stuff we do in the industry, right? With uh, Hydromax, obviously, et cetera. And so we were able to uh, come up with, I think, a, you know, a, a pretty good all-in-one solution. If you're just looking for like, Let's say you put a pre-workout together and say, like, all right, I've got one pump ingredient, quote unquote, ingredient or ingredient matrix 
one pump ingredient and then one stim. What are you going to do? Well, you could do caffeine and 3D pump and you've got a pre-workout potentially. Yeah. You're hitting at a couple of different points along the way and everything. Plus you could get into, you know, some of the, the beneficial pump aspects that caffeine in and of itself it has with vasodilation, calcium release, and all that other fun, fun yep. stuff. Yep. That yeah, it does, so. cool planking stuff. Yeah. 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 Um let's yeah. get into some more general health. Yeah. Say it again. Yeah, you want to cover some other ingredients or some other stuff? Yeah. Yeah, let's do one more with NAD3, and then I think mm -hmm. we will that I will have kept you for a, a pretty long time at that point, and we can table the rest of those for the uh, part two of the podcast. Sure. Uh, let's do NAD3. This is a topic we have not really covered a whole bunch on on the podcast. I, I talked to Sean Wells about a year ago. I think it's coming up on. Mm -hmm. um, with some of the stuff that he was doing with NMN and NNB nutrition, but we haven't done a, a ton on any just NAD, nicotinamide, riboside, you know, NAD just in general. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's, I guess, let's start with a little kind of a high level overview for the listeners about what, why is NAD important? And if they're listening to any other kind of supplement related podcasts or just like longevity, fitness, wellness stuff, they've probably heard about the importance of NAD um nad plus nadph all of those kind mm -hmm. of things so i guess let's start there and delve into what nad3 is and why it might be a little bit different than some of the other uh nad related substances on the market yeah so i think a uh, high level overview is there was some seminal there's been some seminal work uh in the nad space in general that basically put it on the map um and, get, and got it reinvigorated re-excited beyond it just being uh, a byproduct of vitamin B3 metabolism of niacin, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we know that NAD for decades, we've known from a biochemistry standpoint that NAD is an essential coenzyme that allows you to move around electrons and mm -hmm. hydrogen atoms, basically. Uh, in many, many, the majority of redox reactions in the body and most living organisms, to be honest with you, uh, it utilizes NAD or NADH. So NAD plus is the quote-unquote oxidized form of nicotinamide, uh, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, the nucleotide NAD+. And the NAD+, the reason it's plus, it's, it's charged because it, it's missing its hydrogen, and therefore it's been oxidized, it's missing an electron, and that's why it's charged positively as NAD+. So that's where people see NAD+. NADH means it's been reduced from the whole redox differentiation, reduction oxidation, uh, it's been reduced and actually the electron and the proton have been paired now and now you have NADH. And so it can go back and forth and sort of play uh, ping pong or you know whatever other analogy you wanna use like pass the balloon. If yeah. the hydrogen and the electrons, the, the, the balloon, you're passing it along back and forth to be able to transform molecules and reduce them or oxidize them throughout the entire body in every single cell of the body. Yeah. So we already knew NAD was essential for life. We know that without NAD+, plus, without a, a sufficient NAD status, um, you know, you probably couldn't live for more than a few seconds at a time. Uh, it's that important. Mm -hmm. But then I, I think the, the, the paradigm shift came when we realized that NAD plus itself could also be used as a fuel or a substrate, uh, like a raw material that's used as fuel for other enzymes where it actually gets used and broken down and degraded. Mm -hmm. The way you, you would almost break down and degrade glucose, for example, right? And convert it into something else. 
completely yeah. degrade it. So now you're not using it for redox reactions to move around electrons and hydrogens, right, in the mitochondria or in the cell. Now you're using NAD as a substrate, as a fuel, because it has some components that the enzyme is going to then use in order to signal to the cell to change its metabolism, to change how it's turning on or off genes, to change um, which genes are being repaired, which, what, how DNA is being repaired, potentially. Yeah. So if you want a cell that's going to be resilient, ultimately, mm -hmm. to a lot of environmental stressors or a lot of things that we see in normal Western you know, or everyday cultures, whether it's yeah. due to environmental pollution or pollutants or overconsumption of calories, alcohol consumption, you know, overweight, type 2 diabetes, et cetera, you're going to tax the NAD system in the body. And NAD plus is a substrate for specifically the, the two main enzymes that we know it's a major substrate for. Our one is called the sirtuin family, which many people have been following the longevity space have probably heard about already. Yep. And there are seven different sirtuin isoenzymes in, in humans that we know of. Mm -hmm. And then there's something called PARPs or poly-ADP ribosylation polymerases. Basically, it, these are things that take the NAD molecule and borrow something from it in order to tag it to other proteins in the, in the cell. Uh, and the sirtuin uses NAD as what's known as a, uh, for its, um, uh, the enzyme uh, sirtuin, what it does is mostly deacetylate things. It removes acetyl groups, acetyl groups from proteins, from histones, from uh, other compounds in order to change how genes are either being expressed, like to turn on like resilience programs mm -hmm. or programs that are considered, um, they make a cell more resilient to the effects of, of aging, accelerated aging. So uh, over the last eight to 10 years, there's been a big movement in finding ways to augment your NAD plus status. And that has opened up this whole, you know, uh, sort of, I guess, wave mm -hmm. of uh, various methods to try to improve or increase someone's NAD status. Yeah. And that's anything from, uh, you know, Chromadex's product, Nigen or NR, uh, nicotinamide riboside, to uh, the NMN molecule that, again, you mentioned mm -hmm. NMB has and David Sinclair has talked about. Um, Charles Brenner is a scientist that um, that hold, held a lot of the original IP on NR that mm -hmm. ended up being acquired by Chromadex. Um, and so one of the things that all those, that both, there's a bit of a war between NR and NMN you're probably familiar with. Um, to be honest with you, one of the things that intrigued us is I felt like there was there were a few things happening. I felt people were missing the the, the, the higher, like, um, higher order, higher level point here. Like from the top down 30,000 foot view, you should almost be agnostic to how you get your NAD levels up. There are many ways to improve your NAD status. Yeah. Exercising, you know, maintaining calorie restriction at the appropriate times may help you also increase your NAD status, but mm -hmm. exercise is a great way to do it, especially intramuscular NAD levels, which to be honest, as of right now, we don't have good evidence that any supplement increases muscular intramuscular levels of NAD yet. Most, most of what we have seen in the data shows that mm -hmm. if you supplement with NR and MN, sure, you can reliably see increases in blood NAD levels. Right. That's from like, 
PBMCs or basically blood uh, cells within the blood, mm-hmm. uh, or if you just look at whole blood levels of NAD, if you just take the whole blood and analyze it, you can see yeah. NAD plus levels increase. Okay. Um, so what we did is uh, my partners and I took a look at what was happening and said, there, there's a few things missing. One is, what if we weren't just worried about just pumping more like precursor into the system? Because if, if that's the point, why couldn't you just use niacin or NMN or, or niacinamide? To be yeah, honest? right. Uh, and actually, there's, there's data showing that you can. You can increase blood, liver, and actually in people that have mitochondrial myopathy in human clinical trials, mm-hmm. niacinamide and niacin have both been shown to increase muscular levels and help normalize hmm. muscular levels of NAD plus in muscle with 250 to 500 milligrams of daily supplementation, even over as little as four to 12 weeks. So- You just gotta um, deal with the flush that comes on with the- uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so what I do personally is I prefer to overweight it to, towards uh, niacinamide. So I use a little bit of niacin and niacinamide in a blend, basically. That's my NAD precursor of choice, but I, I don't mind NMN, it mm-hmm. works. Uh, kind of pricey to do it uh, compared to niacin or niacinamide, but it, it can work. Right. NR can work as well. Um, so basically, we took a step back and said, okay, what if we were agnostic to whether you use NR, NMN, niacin, or niacinamide? Is there a way for us to look at the actual pathway, like the biosynthetic pathway, mm-hmm. the NAD metabolome? Like how, is, how does the body make NAD on its, on its own? Yeah. Well, it makes it through a few different pathways. It can take tryptophan and do de novo synthesis. Very complex. There's probably about uh, eight to 12 different chemical reactions, biochemical mm-hmm. reactions to get to NAD. Then you have something called the price handler pathway, which um, can take um, nicotinic acid or niacin. That's another word. Niacin or nicotinic acid are interchangeable. Right. You can take niacin and make um, NAMN, and then eventually get to NAD through basically two or three enzymatic steps. Okay. And there's the big one, which is the way most of our cells in our body make the majority of our NAD is the salvage pathway, which is recycling either Mm -hmm. dietary precursors like taking niacinamide or niacin, or what happens when you take NAD and break it down by having it be consumed by those enzymes like sirtuin mm-hmm. and like PAR, the PARPs. When they consume NAD, they break off niacinamide and it can be picked up and recycled again. So that's the gotcha. salvage pathway. So okay. look, the body's, you know, it's incredibly intelligent and it's, it's so redundant, so many adaptive pathways. There's so much redundancy. You know, we didn't just you know, discover a way to allow our bodies to get any enough NAD, right? In the last right. years. <laughs> uh, so, so the, the, uh, the, the issue there is just, just providing the body with enough precursor. Mm-hmm. And there are many pathways. There are many roads that lead to Rome, many yeah. roads. And you can look at this if you'd like go to a Google images map and, and you look at NAD metabolome and you'll mm-hmm. see all the pathways and you see they all get to NAD. So we said, I wonder if there's a way for us to upregulate the enzymes that are controlling those steps, right? To be able to take any of those precursors and be a little more efficient mm-hmm. at making more NAD if you need it. So if we, if we were able to accomplish that, then we knew that we could 
we, we basically could be agnostic to whatever your choice was. And you could use our ingredient with any of those precursors. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, the other thing I looked at is I wanted to look at all of these health span promoting and lifespan promoting uh, uh, behaviors or activities, you know, things like even if, you know, there's, there's some controversy over whether intermittent fasting works because of just calorie restriction or whether there are some unique benefits. It seems like if you parse out the data, there might be some unique benefits with truncating your window. Um, and even early, if anything, early time restricted feeding would probably be the uh, more optimal choice. Right. Uh, things like the Mediterranean, a well, well, um, you know, well-constructed Mediterranean diet, uh, exercise, whether it's high intensity interval training, whether it's long steady state duration, you know, zone two to zone four training, whether it's strength training, all of these things, um, including, you know, polyphenols and all these, you know, hormetic stressors, heat stress, sauna, um, uh, mindful meditation, all these things have a a signature. They all have a molecular and biochemical signature. So mm -hmm. if you perform any of these activities and you were to, if you were ever able to uh, assay what's happening within certain tissues and certain cells, mm -hmm. you could see that they all have a unique biochemical or molecular signature, right? So there's mm -hmm. like an orchestra of these events taking place. So what if we could maybe amplify that signature or mimic that signature? So that's the other thing we were looking for in trying to screen various compounds to lead us to NAD3. The third thing that was the linchpin for us that allowed us to discover NAD3 mm -hmm. was we started seeing some unique things with theocrine. If you go back to the 2016 paper uh, by uh, Lem Taylors and um, uh, the group out of uh, University uh, Mary Harden Baylor, Mm -hmm. The 2016 paper, it was the safety study where we looked at 200 milligrams for a month right. of green versus placebo versus 300 milligrams. We even went above the grass dose just to show safety, even beyond grass, yeah. even beyond our 100x you know, grass dose, uh, uh, beyond the no-out. And we still showed that there, there was something that, that was non-obvious there, that signal that was statistically significant but it wasn't a primary outcome. And we're like, that's interesting. We saw a statistically significant decrease in total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and a trend in triglycerides in both the 200, and it was like dose dependent. So it was stronger in the 300 milligram group, but we were already seeing it in the 200 milligram dose group over just four weeks. Interesting. And, and these were like healthy college age individuals that were starting with like a total cholesterol of. 185 or 180, you know, 190 maybe. Yeah. So that was, a, something was going on there. I was like, I wonder what's happening. Could that be, you know, hepatic, liver, mitochondrial, something going on? So mm -hmm. we started sponsoring some animal work. Some of it was done in China. Uh, and we started doing some in vitro work that mm -hmm. we published since. And you'll actually see a trail over the last, like, I guess 2016 is probably uh, six years, six or seven years. If you look up theocrine and like longevity or theocrine and sirtuin, theocrine and uh, mitochondria or ALCAD, like long chain acyl dehydrogenase, you'll start mm -hmm. seeing where we ran into, we stumbled into something non-brain related, non-energy related, related to T-crine. So cool. theocrine is one of the ingredients in NAD3. It's three ingredients. 
It's NAD. Right. It's a wasabi that's very rich. Uh, we screened multiple wasabi sources. It's very mm -hmm. rich in a, a unique blend of isothiocyanates. Uh, these cyanates are found in like cruciferous vegetables. So everyone's probably heard of like the broccoli, like glucoraphanin uh, and sulforaphane, right, is the end product um, yeah. from these glucose. And these are all families of isothiocyanates. Moringa has it. A lot of these other cruciferous brassica vegetables have it. Mm -hmm. Wasabi, you know, I've always been a fan of wasabi. Love it. You know, I can't have, you know, can't have a sushi meal without extra wasabi. Right? Oh, yeah. Same here. Same here. You like it? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Um, so I always felt like intrigued by it. I was like, I wonder if we take a deeper dive and see if there's some some other bioactives that we can look at. And so there's some like methyl, phenyl, isothiocyanates. There's some unique families of these compounds in there. And we started doing some in vitro work of like, if we pulled out, for example, if we pulled out wasabi and put in another botanical, like, like broccoli, uh, mm -hmm. broccoli extract, if we pulled in uh, quercetin, for example, if we pulled in some others that we knew might have some longevity mitochondrial benefits, yeah. uh, would we get the same synergies we were seeing with combining theocrine with it? Um, and we weren't. So there was a unique signal when combining theocrine with wasabi that we ran into in vitro sure. with all other conditions being controlled. Mm -hmm. Granted, it's in vitro. Obviously, there's a lot to be able to go from in vitro to human, but it was it, that in combination with what we were seeing with theocrine. And then um, I, I've also always been intrigued by the concept of copper. Most of the way we supplement our copper is using cupric or the plus two oxidized copper form, yeah. even the chelates, the copper chelates. Mm -hmm. but the type of copper called cuprous nicotinate, which ironically enough uses niacin as a way to chelate and maintain copper in the plus one valence state, which basically means it's just, um, it, it's got, you know, a, a difference in, in the orbital arrangement in terms of um, uh, it's a plus one instead of a plus two charge on it. Right. And yeah. it's the way that the body uses copper in a lot of these like sodium oxide dismutase enzymes. And it's how it uses copper as a cofactor mostly in mitochondria, as well as in some of these other antioxidant enzymes. Mm -hmm. so, so we combine these three ingredients, a mineral, a botanical, and an alkaloid, theocrine. And we put it in, a, in various ratios. Uh, this has been about you know, a five and a half year process in the making, running it stealth, not really telling anyone until about two years ago when you know, we uh, still semi-stealth, you know, ended yeah. up partnering with a couple guys, to, a couple groups to launch it. Mm -hmm. And now we're, um, you know, we're in conversations with some pretty substantial brands to license it. So that's an example of where we took an ingredient, took a very different licensing approach and mm -hmm. commercialization approach. Uh, yeah. We just finished uh, publishing our first human study. We have another subset human study that's coming as well. So we actually supplemented in a, a very well controlled. We were pretty rigorous if you look through the method section, mm -hmm. how we controlled for it. Um, placebo versus NAD3. And we actually measured NAD levels, even though we weren't supplementing with a niacin precursor at all. Uh, we still were yeah. able to see improvements in the NAD status, probably because of those enzymes that we saw upregulated when we did like uh, transcriptomics. We did RNA-seq to look at like all the genes that were being transcribed and turned on or turned off yeah. in cells. We saw those, some of those genes being turned on and amplified. Um, and we also hit like, there's this, um, within the longevity geroscience world, like of aging, 
-hmm. There's these nine molecular hallmarks of aging. Um, uh, Lopez Ortin, uh, unrelated to me, a different Lopez out of Spain. Um, they published some work um, which talked about the, the hallmarks of aging in 2013. Mm -hmm. We actually have shown that mechanistically in preclinical models and, and or in human clinical models now, we're able to hit almost all nine of those molecular hallmarks of aging. Everything from a pathway related to cellular senescence, stem cell exhaustion, intercellular communication, uh, epigenetic regulation, um, telomere integrity, mitochondrial mm -hmm. health. Um, yeah, so we're excited to hit all nine of those hallmarks of aging. So we took a different approach um, than, you know, everyone was chasing after like, you know, senolytics like Fisetin or NMN and NR. Yeah. We just said, you know what, you can, you can use all of those, but we're, we're going to bring you something that much like Smart Prime mm -hmm. is, is meant to be a companion ingredient that can elevate like the rising tide that raises all boats in that space. So you can use yeah. it in conjunction with any of those other ingredients and probably, okay. you know, additive or interactive benefits. And we're doing a study now, which is pretty cool design where um, we, we took elderly subjects again. And that's the other thing is this is the target population. So we're not looking at this in, you know, in 20 year olds, uh, you know, 50 and over 50 to 65 plus. And we're doing a study now where we're, we're actually using a unilateral uh, resistance training for legs method. Mm -hmm. And we're taking muscle biopsies of uh, both the trained leg and the untrained leg at baseline. Ooh. Yeah, I know, I know. So like you got 50 year olds to sign up to get a chunk of their muscle just ripped out. <laughs> our, 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 that's, and we're using an academic partner for that one. Yeah, we've, we've done a fair number of biopsy studies at our lab, like as a yeah. CRO. Man, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, um, yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. And, yeah. and it's not easy to um, recruit and, and enroll patients, right? Right. But they get, they, get a good, they get good compensation for it. So it's not quite inducement, but it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a healthy compensation and stipend for their contribution to science. There you go. Yeah. So, so they're, they're, we're getting biopsies of both legs pre um, and then post training. And then we're also getting blood. So we're going to try to see if what we saw in the first study in humans, where we only looked at blood and safety markers, uh, and we saw like gene expression changes, we saw telomere changes, NAD, we even saw those lipid changes, again, mm -hmm. confirmed, but even amplified with a smaller dose, because we're using less than 200 or 300 milligrams of T-crene in that blend. And uh, now we're going to look to see, can we see changes in muscle itself? And then we're going to see if do we have performance changes, functional capacity, changes in um, uh, in some of the other uh, important metrics of health span and lifespan beyond, you know, um, beyond just like oh, did you move some esoteric you know gene signal like sirtuin in in blood or right. in in a muscle cell, right? So. Fascinating. With since you're studying this in an older population. Mm -hmm. Is this, and just in general, I guess this applies to most of these longevity supplements. Is it really worthwhile for 20 and 30 year olds, even maybe early 40s, to even think about this kind of stuff? Or is it something like, is this a supplement that really you're not even going to see the utility or justify the expense until you're maybe past 45 or 50? I, you know, that's a great question. And it, based on everything that I've seen and my experience as both a clinician when I was practicing for 10 plus years, 
in spine and sports medicine, right? Uh, work with athletes, work with athletes at all levels from amateur to pro um, and work with elderly individuals who have sarcopenia, right? Uh, and beyond. I think that what's interesting is um, most of what we're trying to do from a supplement intervention for improving or supporting longevity, mm -hmm. I, I think probably has very little merit or utility in the very young population because the young population already has they have such a low inflammatory like cytokine stat like milieu in their plasma. Mm -hmm. They have such a low senolytic burden still. Um, their mitochondria is still so healthy. You know, everything is working like, you know, the way yeah. you want it to. Right. So I, th I see very little benefit, to be honest, with anything that we're doing currently in terms of intervention. But having said that, there's two caveats to that. One is is lifestyle change has a much more important impact when you're younger to get you to a peak level of just like we used to say in women, right? You should try to attain a peak level of bone mineral density or bone mass before you know you're going to get the inevitable, inevitable decline right to that osteopenic osteoporotic stage. If you live long enough, yeah. right in an estrogen depleted state, mm -hmm. I think the same thing should, we should have the same approach for skeletal muscle mass accrual. I think you should try to accumulate within reason as much of that peak level of skeletal muscle or lean body mass yeah. as you can before you start seeing the decline. So before you're 35, you know? Right. Um, and then I think beyond 30 to 35, depending on what your biological age is, which when, when we get a better uh, biomarker of biological age, there's some promise now with some epigenetic markers out there. You know, companies like True Age have a really good one that we actually use in our human study, looking at epigenetic age and epigenetic profile. Um, and biological age markers like PhenoAge, like Morgan Levine's PhenoAge, which we're measuring in both of these human studies mm -hmm. coming up. Um, I think I think there's, there's probably like um, much more merit to using it once you're, you're starting to see uh, you know, some of those measures just at the, at the point where you're starting to see some of those other biological age markers start coming up a little bit. Yeah. So okay. probably 30, 30 to 35 would be the youngest. I think that there might be merit for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I was trying to get, I get, I get at, and you, you touched on it is that sure. It might have like a, an infinitesimally minuscule amount of benefit when you're in your twenties, just because you said like everything's still running in peak shape, you know, assuming you're doing the things like you're eating well, you're sleeping well, you're not stressed and you're, you're training hard and all that kind of stuff. You're mm -hmm. not drinking yourself to, you know, oblivion every other day of the week or something right. like that. Um, and so just because your body is naturally doing all of these things, is, is it more like you're just, you, you just, you're getting the spillover to where you're supplementing with it. It might have some tangential benefit, but nothing you're really going to realize, not something as maybe necessary as like joint health support or something along those lines which you will probably want to start that early and then continue as you get older to attenuate any further declines in structure, function, inflammation, those kind of things. So that's I agree. Where I yeah, yeah, I think you, what you do is you move the big blocks, the big boulders first when you're younger. Yeah. Get your, look, one thing I would start really early is get your omega-3 index optimized. Get your omega status optimized. Make sure you're, you're following good, like we said, good dietary principles, you know, stress management, sleep, exercise, et cetera. Yeah. And different exercise modalities, not just cardiovascular, or cardiorespiratory, aerobic uh, hit, but combining it with strength training and even starting to address mobility and biomechanics as well. Yeah. But um, 
you know, I, I think it's it's just get your big boulders in place, like vitamin D status, magnesium status, omega-3, you know, status, um, you know, sufficient protein status. Get your 1.6 to 2 grams per kilo per day from the time you're in your teens, if you can. If you can get those big boulders in there first, you know, even creatine monohydrate. I mean, I started supplementing, I guess I was probably 17, maybe, EAS. But yeah. I guess creatine was the first time, you know, the first creatine monohydrate supplement. I started taking it in the early 90s, maybe. I've been supplementing for, you know, well over 30, 35 years, 30 years. I've been on three to five grams of creatine even before the all loading versus maintenance, you know, stuff came along. Yeah. So, yeah. And your kidneys haven't fallen out yet? You don't have chronic kidney yeah. disease from creatine <laughs> supplementation? <laughs> Believe it or not, right? Yeah. I, and obviously, as you probably know, I'm a co-author on some of those uh, position papers on safety and, yeah. and the data, right, for creatine. So, yeah. I actually used creatine when I was in at Northwestern at residency and got it on the formulary at a lot of the Chicagoland hospitals. Cool. Um, I did a study in chronic stroke patients, actually. Mm -hmm. We did a randomized controlled clinical trial. We had stroke patients that were six months out from their stroke. So we didn't have that like weird area of spontaneous recovery where everyone's getting better after yeah. their stroke. Right. So six months stable post-stroke, but they still had their hemiplegic gait where they had one one side of their body was clearly affected and mm -hmm. motor deficits and it was affecting their gait and their ability to walk, you know, more than, you know, a couple meters per second, for example. Yeah. And yeah, we did a creatine group, small scale. It was seven subjects in each, you know, uh, arm. Creatine versus placebo. This was 2004, 2005, 2004, 2005. Uh, and we did body weight supported treadmill training where they had a harness and they were walking over the treadmill to try to improve their gait status. That was the only exercise they did for 25 minutes, three days a week, both groups. The creatine group saw dramatic improvements just from, we were just doing maintenance five grams a day for, we only did 45 days, 45 days of training and supplementation. They, their, their improvements in not only gait speed, but like we didn't even train squat, but their ability to do chair sit to stand like 35, 40% improvement over placebo. Their ability to negotiate stairs, to go up, to climb two, two uh, flights of stairs. Uh, and then what we saw then that I, I should have pursued further, I just got busy and went into private practice and didn't pursue it further. I didn't even publish it. I just published it as an abstract uh, mm -hmm. in the grand rounds sort of internally within Northwestern and Chicago. Uh, is we, and this is where it was interesting. We saw improvements subjectively at VAS measures in mood, their perceived ability to focus, their perceived ability to uh, uh, perform cognitively and cognitive function. Yeah. So they were happy. They felt happier. They felt they were in a better mood. And already we were getting early indications that creatine is probably one of the oldest nootropics, right, that we've had. Cool. In the well, yeah, because there's been like the last four or five years or so where there's been a, a you know, a boon of research about the cognitive aspects of creatine. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. It's like I've, my, my wife's been on it for a couple of years now. I like every now and then I'll sprinkle a little bit in my, my four-year-old's like smoothie or shake that I'll give her or something just to start. We'll start micro loading it. And we'll, you know, when she gets a little older, I'll, I'll hit her with the main doses of it. I did that when my oldest, my 17-year-old, and she was, uh, she got her black belt in TKD and Kukiwan Ta Taekwondo, World Taekwondo Federation. So when she was starting to get to a point where some headshots, you know, oh, just yeah. for, you know, for the prophylaxis from head injuries. So 
Um, yeah, that was like, you know, seven or eight years ago. And yeah, she was, I had her on like, you know, she was at three grams a day probably. Yeah. For her size. Yeah. And probably for that size, that's more than enough to maintain saturation or, you know, achieve it and then Mm -hmm. maintain it at that. Yeah, man. So yeah. Awesome. Dr. Lopez, we are almost at the two hour mark and you and I were talking for a good, like 10 minutes before we even officially started this thing. Yeah. Um, I don't want to abuse your time anymore than I already have. Um, thank you, uh, so much. This has been a masterclass in, supplement science, research, uh, you know, structure function claims, like legal stuff to keep people safe with all that, the ingredient deep dives. And there's still so much more that I want to ask. I'm <laughs> so going to table that. Ingredients to review and more, yeah. right? So much more. Plus, and even ingredients that I'm not directly involved in that I could give you, you know, an opinion on based on our database, like I told you, of over, you know, 300 studies, 250 studies that we've conducted. Yeah, exactly. Um, is there anything you want to plug or mention or things where you want people to reach out to you or anything like that? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I don't do much social media. I mean, I, I really don't. I used to do more Twitter. I used to be involved early. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe now that Elon's, Elon's taking it over, you're going to jump back on. <laughs> maybe I'll jump back on again. <laughs> uh, it's, it's tough. I'm involved in a lot, uh, both within the um, supplement space and even more in the Now I've, I've ventured more into the biomedical health space and doing a little more in health span and longevity and health and human performance from midlife on. Yeah. Uh, for individuals. Um, so yeah, just joining more boards, doing more stuff and uh, board stuff. I'm also an advisor to multiple private equity groups as well as a domain expert. So um, yeah, LinkedIn probably is the easiest way to get in touch with me. I'd say if somebody wants to reach out and uh, I look forward to, you know, chatting some more. I know it's, uh, it's tough to get the schedules to work, but we'll do it again. This was fun. So absolutely. Awesome. Dr. Lopez. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Awesome, man. Thank you.